This is Start Disrupting, a show about the innovator, scientist, and designer disrupting industries and creating 10x impact. I'm your host, Brett Malone, President and CEO of the Virginia Tech Corporate Research Center. My guest today is Daniel Smith. He's the co-founder of Entos, graduate of Cogro, raised $53 million to launch his company, and he's working entirely in the area of using AI and software to discover new drugs. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss Daniel Smith from Entos. So how do we how do we take this back to the beginning and start thinking about well what what are some of the challenges you know t- typically when we think about even the field of understanding you know identifying discovering therapeutics and and looking at from a, a health perspective what are some interventions and and you know the idea of high throughput screening the idea of things being derived from a, a compound based library and you know the way the industry has done it for so many years. And, you know, what every investor knows is a challenge in terms of the low hit rate. And even if you have a hit, the probability of, you know, surviving trials, surviving minimum toxicity, you know, just the, the randomness and the, the, the identifying and the screening and the way we've done it in the past. So talk, talk a little bit about first, what, what kind of problem does that method pose i mean what's the expense and the challenge and the risk and and frankly how it becomes diminishing returns sure so i could definitely talk about this as as a newcomer you know to to the industry i'm largely i'm I'm software and quantum chemistry and background and so i i'm looking at this industry and learning it from a mathematical viewpoint and i think the one thing that we always see you know, when talking to medicinal chemists and people, you know, on the bench trying to figure out, you know, new and novel drugs, um, is that primarily what they look at is a single dimension at a time. Uh, so, for example, you know, they say, aha, I have this drug, everything about it is great, um, you know, up to an in vivo perspective. Um, but, you know, for example, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mm-hmm. have the right blood brain uh, barrier penetration metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, therefore, what I want to do is I want to make this play. And so when I'm making this play, I know the various characteristics that if I improve upon, it may improve this particular quantity. And so, you know, I think humans are really good at this, this one dimensional aspect at a time. Um, but I think where, where humans, for example, have a really hard time is doing the multidimensional aspect. You know, so for example, making a better, you know, uh, uh, blood brain barrier penetrance might decrease its potency. And if I mm-hmm. decrease its potency, you know, very easily by an order of magnitude, then it falls kind of outside of the regime that it's a valid drug for. Um, and so I think, you know, like in this approach, what you can often do is that you spend like a lot of time trying to move around in single dimensions of chemical space at a time. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, and I think that's, that's very often why it takes so long to try to improve upon one task is you're trying to improve one, upon one task, you know, knowing that it's correlated to all the others. What's the biggest misconception? I mean, as you work with people, and as you develop your methods, you know, I want to get into a little bit about how things are, are changing for the better in our industry. Yeah, you know, I think it's really hard to say that there's just one significant limitation. Um, I, you know, I, I think the, the more that we get into this, the more that we see, you know, everything from, you know, the bio aspects are incredible, you know, like off target, you know, hits, uh, you know, things that we don't even think about as, as, you know, especially from a quantum background, um, you know, 
play such enormous roles. I, I can't even describe the number of things there that that's incredible. You know, I, I think also on the analytics point of view, it, it, I think something that we, I certainly haven't thought about, but watching how fast analytics has come up in the recent years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, doing kind of like high throughput screens, you know, taking a single core mm-hmm. and putting lots of building blocks on it has been around for a long time. Um, but the analytical methods to really do it at scale, you know, have, have only really existed in the past five years to do it really well or so. And so, you know, I, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, it's not only, you know, being able to drive, you know, better chemical, you know, intuition, you know, drive better throughout chemical space. It's, it's all the other elements are really coming together to actually change our industry. You know, and this kind of goes back to, it's always a multidimensional optimization problem. Um, right. You know, just right. optimizing potency is, is one thing, but, you know, so say we, we have the absolute best way of, of finding, you know, chemical matter. Well, in a lot of ways, it doesn't really move the needle that much if you're limited by biology, for example. And so, you know, your work with Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech and, you know, understanding from the Molecular Sciences and Software Institute, you know, what has been the evolution of AI in, in applying this and, and how how is AI now helping us discover new things and, and maybe from a rational design approach? I think if you watch the evolution of AI over time, it's been a very interesting item where we started from this incredibly basic, I'm just going to take a lot of data, I'm going to take some very generic, you know, deep neural networks, and I'm going to try to do something. And, you know, I, I think what we saw originally was that held promise. And I think not only that it held promise in our field, uh, but we also saw that out in, in other fields and in, phys- in physics in general, you know, in biology, um, that this, this very general approach um, was able to not surpass cutting edge techniques at the very beginning, but at least match them. And I think what this did was this gave people a lot of faith to, you know, basically double down and invest even more um, time and money into this problem. Physical chemistry and machine learning represents a very unique opportunity because we can always compute the baseline. We can always generate, you know, what we're looking for in the data, um, which is really unique compared to other fields where you have to go out, take a bunch of pictures, annotate them, and it's dirty data. Mm-hmm. Um, so in chemistry with ab initio uh, computations, we're able to directly generate our training data. We're directly able to explore chemical space in any fashion that we want. Mm-hmm. And so if we have this particular power, what we can do is start building neural networks and, and neural network ideas to map and, and reproduce those results. And I think if we look out into the world, and I, I think there's this really nice paper um, on basically confirmers with different levels of physical fidelity. So, so different um, molecular structures and how well they're recaptured with different levels of physical fidelity. Mm-hmm. And I think what it did was really clearly show that there's basically this direct line between an incredible amount of physics that is extremely costly to compute and very cheap physics, which is very cheap to compute. Mm-hmm. And if you put this on a log scale, what you actually get is accuracy is, is basically this linear line uh, through the cost. And I think if we look at that, it's actually kind of shocking to me when you take a step back and you look at this, this large history that we have this perfectly linear correlation there. And, mm-hmm. and really what it says is that our entire field has kind of toiled you know, along this, this particular line uh, for the past 40 years. Yeah. And you know, I, I think oh, coupled with you know, this ability to automatically generate data um, and, and automatically benchmark this data, what machine learning really does is give us the capability to step off this line to basically say, I'm going to do something cheaper 
than my high accuracy, high cost methods, mm -hmm. um, but still get that particular uh, cost metric. And, you know, I, I think this is an incredible way of looking at, you know, basically what we've done as a field was generate a Pareto frontier. And, mm -hmm. you know, now what we're doing with machine learning is finding these points off this Pareto frontier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this is really the true power of machine learning. And I think what we're seeing over time is that effectively machine learning for this particular field is building a new Pareto frontier. Yeah. And I think that's really where the impact, you know, can be played. Plus people exploring sort of these nonlinear spaces, people who are disc exploring discrete changes, you know, being able to introduce a little bit of randomness, discreteness, but also be able to start to explore around that. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, how did you get into this, Daniel? Tell me a little bit about how, how, how did you get into this? I mean, let's, let's rewind a little bit. You, it, this is such a fascinating story. It's such a fascinating application. Um, what got you headed down this path? How far do you want to go back? <laughs> well, whatever, whatever feels appropriate. I mean, a lot of us started yeah. to really identify things that they got excited about, you know, it really depends. Grade school, high school, high school chemistry, sure. high school physics, somewhere along the line, something must have clicked so, for you that said, man, this is, this is an area I want to go down. Yeah. I think, I think basically I got my, my love of science. Uh, so my grandfather had this uh, incredible um, basically garden of different metals and, and gases and welders and things like this. He was a metal worker for, for mm. many years. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, out there, we just had, you know, every piece of metal, every capability to, you know, weld it, machine it, you know, do anything that we want with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, one of the earliest applications that, that I, that we figured out with it was basically um, we make a, a rocket and, and pack sodium perchlorate in the bottom. And, and then um, it's a metal rocket. And of course you go out and light it. And basically there's a, you know, mile high column of smoke. And, and that was just amazing to me. Of course, there was the fear of after it went up of where is that? And then something really <laughs> still, and then realizing this wasn't exactly the right way to go about it. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of evolved into, you know, a couple of years later, we were building um, uh, hybrid uh, liquid uh, rocket engines in our backyard. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, get out giant tanks of nitrous oxide, you know, get some PVC pipe. And, you know, we, we had something that, you know, could lift, you know, a couple hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think like that, that really, for me, um, kind of like got me into science and, and what you could do with this kind of technology. Oh, that's cool. Where, where did you grow up? Where were we from? I grew up in, in Lexington, South Carolina, uh, okay. back, uh, back when it was, it, it's, it was one of the fastest growing, uh, counties in the U S for a while. And so it went mm -hmm. from like, you know, miles of, of grassland and trees, <laughs> um, to, to superbia over time. I always wonder like how many people got their love for science from early young rocketry. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much, so many stories about people, just the fascinating side of either getting something launched or blowing something up that has made us all <laughs> been excited about science. And, uh, and so then you, you know, doing, doing a PhD in computational chemistry is, uh, is a logical progression. Tell me how you got excited and interested in the software side of this. Sure. So I think I was always really excited in, in computation because I, I thought it provided this really nice um, exponentiating power. Um, you know, basically, if I could orchestrate everything correctly, I could automate science uh, in some fashions. Mm. You know, we, mm -hmm. we try to automate science on the experimental side, <laughs> and I think there's been really great sides, strides to that, but it's still, you know, incredibly difficult. 
um, you know, software is, is much more, is much easier, is much more straightforward to automate and, and orchestrate and build. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, what I really got into this was um, I was sitting there, you know, running calculation after calculation by hand. And I just like to, I was like, this is insane. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I did was I just started, you know, writing some like little scripts, which started automating that, you know, paralyzing that. And, you know, I think this, this core idea almost got out of control a little bit where, mm-hmm. you know, it was, you know, computational power in academia is very cheap. So mm-hmm. it's really just about the ability to use that computational power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think our, our field is also a little bit unique where we're not about single heroic calculations. Like in computational fluid dynamics, you're like, I'm going to use, you know, uh, half a million cores for two days and then model a jet engine and we're going to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, computational chemistry is much more about, um, I need to run many, many, you know, calculations because they take like these single snapshots in time. Mm-hmm. And so when I start running many calculations, it's much more about the orchestration component than the individual component. And so when I when I looked out in the world, there wasn't really a lot of software that interfaced with modern languages. Um, they really came from domain-specific languages. I had like this domain-specific input. You know, I run this Fortran program and it spits out, you know, this big text blob. Um, and I think this actually become quickly a bottleneck to this orchestration, this control that we're really looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so about this time, I, I started working on a program called Cypher. Um, and Cypher was, you know, w- really modern, quote unquote, where, you know, it used like C++ and Python. And we had like a lot of control over how things were run. You know, we went from like domain specific languages to, you know, common serializable inputs and outputs. Um, and I think really pressing upon this idea, you know, allowed us to have a program that has this capability. And uh, I think something that's fascinating to me is that I know actually a lot of uh, some of the larger uh, companies that, that build kind of like pharmaceutical suites actually use this tool. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's really kind of cool to watch this thing that we built, you know, use actually all these big pharma companies, um, you know, and, and so like, you know, I think that's fascinating, like kind of proving out that particular idea. Yeah, and um, I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, you mentioned CFD and computational fluid dynamics. And so, you know, you can use a computer simulation to design a wing and then you still need to stick it in a wind tunnel to see if you if you have the lift and drag characteristics. So chemistry yeah. can't be that much different. I mean, you're going to have to get out of the in silico and get into the lab and, and test compounds. How does that transition? How do you decide when it's time to go from the, the simulation to the physical world? Yeah, so I guess there's there's two different tacks that you can take with this. So, so I think one is um, I, I love to use the story of Autodesk of of where they took basically finite elements and you know this was this fun academic exercise and what they did was they packaged it up nicely they gave it to Coke and it saved Coke millions of dollars you know printing Coke cans right um, and right. so you know I love I love that analogy because it it really it really goes back and tells you that that actually you don't have to do something incredibly complicated to do something impactful. And I think that coupled with your comment earlier on, you know, if we look out at how AI is being applied right now, AI is not being really applied to make the decisions. AI is being applied to help supplement human decisions, to provide them with alternative information and alternative Mm -hmm. ideas. Um, primarily. And I think if I, if I connect this back to computation, you know, this is where we really want to connect together is, you know, I, I don't think we should use at this exact moment in silico to fully drive, you know, drug discovery or something like that. You know, I, I mean, I think if you even make this statement, that sounds insane. Um, and so really, uh, you know, what you're, what we're really after at, at the moment, and I think what we're really seeing 
is that in silico is helping to inform decisions made in drug discovery. And really what we're looking for is not, it, it, just, it makes decisions and helps drive decisions, but what's that dial? Like how much do you trust it? Mm-hmm. And so I think if you look, you know, kind of common pharma companies, that trust really isn't there. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the two teams are, are very separate. You know, you have um, you know, business with chemists and they're like, hey, explore this, this, con- this question to the comp chemist. And the comp chemists go off and they come back and they say, hey, we kind of have this study. And they're like, oh, okay, that's great. Like, you know, kind of tackle this next problem. Um, and then you kind of had like this next wave of, of kind of like computational, you know, somewhat driven companies and, and you know, like kind of like that next wave, you know, they actually started from a seed of, of computation. So I think if you look, you know, there's like relays and ballows and silicon therapeutics of the world, right? And, mm-hmm. and they all started from a seed of computation, which was really cool. And, and then what happened was, you know, then we put all the layers around them and, you know, that seed didn't really grow. And, and I think what we're trying to do right now is... You know, there's been a lot of trust basically given in computation, you know, kind of like, you know, increasingly over time. And, and we see that success out in the world. Right. And, and I think what we're, what we're really looking to do is kind of like the next stage is give a little bit more trust into computation. And so, mm-hmm. and so you know, it, it's not just, you know, it's not fully computation, it's not fully human, um, but let's do something that changes that needle one more notch and say computation is going to help drive more decisions than before. Yeah. And that's, that makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're just continually relying and gaining more and more confidence and and over time we'll introduce it in the right places. And, but we're never really, you know, even applications in self-driving cars, applications in, uh, in various areas, it's like progressively adding, adding value. So, so congratulations too on Entos. I mean, I know uh, raising a $53 million series a round, that's a, a huge win for you and your company. And how does it feel? It uh, it's really is incredible. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just, I, I remember the days when it was actually uh, Matt and I just sitting at Cogro at the VTCRC and mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know, looking out being like, what are we going to do in the world? And, you know, we knew kind of like you know, the shape of it and, and um, you know, kind of like where we went ahead, but you know, basically being able to grow the company to the point where um, we actually had capability and uh, ability that we could prove. Um, And then, you know, basically have people have faith in us to make this next step um, was was just this incredible feeling. And now, you know, we're really pulling on, you know, this, this all-star cast of, of of experimental, um, you know, in, in the biology and the med chemistry and the analytical uh, regimes, um, we're, we're really pulling on a lot of people with a ton of experience, um, you know, from very large pharma companies. And they have the faith in us to believe that, you know, we really are going to push something forward that's new and unique. Yeah. And it's, um, it's the right time to be doing that because the bigger companies are embracing it, but the smaller, more nimble companies like yourself are able to fund, fund it and move quickly and build the team. So congratulations on that. We're, we're excited and proud of that, that success you're having. And we'll, we'll definitely look forward to, to following and mapping your progress along the way. I know, I know great things to come as well. What are you, what are you most excited about in the future? I mean, as, as this evolves and, you know, just for our industry, for, you know, areas, if you think way beyond, what are you most excited about on where this can go? Yeah, I think the thing that I, I really am most excited about is the ability of this to have a real impact. And, and, and I think one thing that I found very hard in computation was, you know, how did you actually have impact? You're so far removed, you know, from that whole story. Right. And I think one thing that's so exciting about 
this particular company is that we can, you know, we are, we, we will directly see that impact. We have mm. computation, we have people that, you know, actually design drugs, make drugs and test the drugs. And, you know, that is eventually, you know, going to go into a person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we do that, we actually have the ability to tangibly change their lives. Sure. And so I think for me, that is, that's something that I'm, I'm so thrilled about is to be able to do that in a very connected manner rather than a very disconnected manner. Yeah. And I think that's where the clinical researchers need so much help and there, there's so much demand. And, uh, you know, as we think about well-being and, and the opportunity for therapeutics and, you know, obviously with everything that's happened over the, the personalized medicine and precision medicine and, you know, we ought to bring it all the way back around to what we talked about with biomarkers, AI derived biomarkers and signatures, we're able to identify very specific cohorts of, of clinical candidates. And, you know, so you have that working to your advantage as well. So the impact that you could see, you've got the ability to identify and, and parse out, you know, the right kind of people that would benefit from something new that's discovered. So you have a lot of that working in your favor as well. The, the understanding of genomics, the understanding of, you know, genotyping, phenotyping, and being able to identify who may respond, who may have uh, less toxicity issues, you know? And, and, and so there's lots of factors working in your favor to help set the stage for success for you, I think. That's exactly right. And I think this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, not all the bottlenecks are, you know, basically, you know, in, in chemical matter, right? Of course, right? And and so we really are benefiting a lot from the ability and, and just the simple availability of data of, you know, you know, this is this yeah. cohort, you know, they have, you know, for example, like, you know, this particular population of proteins. And, and, and this is really, you know, something that we can drive upon, um, you know, from a computational point of view. Um, we always, you know, we always know exactly what protein we have, you know, down mm -hmm. to mutation, mm -hmm. right? So that is a very, very exacting, you know, way of looking at the world. Uh, and so, you know, what is really powerful is that we're able to match that exacting view of the world to a patient population. Mm -hmm. and, and that is an incredibly powerful technology. Yeah. And that's, that's where you're sort of designing it all together. And I, I love the way you, you put that because, you know, now you're rationally designing this and you have the target population in mind to, to a high degree of precision. And that's really where everyone is excited about and where we're headed clinically. Daniel Smith, thank you. Co-founder of Entos. We'll, uh, we'll wrap it up here. It's so great to have you on this show. It's so great to, to see your success. It's so great to see Entos just taking off and we're looking forward to great things to come. Yeah, thanks, Brett. I really appreciate it. And that's it for this episode. Subscribe to Start Disrupting wherever you get your podcasts. We have a new disruptor on our show every two weeks, and you're not going to want to miss it. Check out vtcrc.com for the latest on our research park and over 225 companies that call us home. Until next time, always change the game.